Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Brew Theology Podcast. I'm obviously not Ryan, since I don't have that smooth Texas accent. My name is Nate, and I help run the Jersey chapter of Brew Theology. Tonight we have the privilege of hearing from three amazing women who shared with us at the pub last night a conversation that we called The Future is Female, and we also have one of our regular Brew Theologians along with us this evening as well. Before we dive into the conversation, I just want to remind everyone that you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology, and on Twitter at Brew underscore Theology. What you hear on this podcast is a microcosm of what we do in brewery and pub communities all around the country. So if you like what you're listening to, head over to brewtheology.org to check out our ever-growing list of communities. We've got chapters in and around Denver, Colorado, shout out to the mothership, Denver Brew Theology, Greeley, Colorado, Jacksonville, Florida, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, New Jersey, of course, covering Essex, Passaic, and Hudson counties with a little Morris and Bergen sprinkled in for good measure. Sorry, South Jersey. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Atlanta, Georgia, and Canton, Ohio. If there isn't a Brew Theology chapter in your area and you think you'd like to get one started, head over to brewtheology.org, click on Join Us, then contact me, fill out the online form, and someone from our Brew Theology leadership team will get in touch with you. So why don't we go ahead and introduce ourselves with our name, um, your religious or spiritual background or affiliation, if you have one. If not, feel free to share that as well. Um, What it is that you do since that will end up being relevant to tonight's conversation, and um, what you're drinking tonight. Um, I'll go ahead and get us started. Um, I'm Nate, as I mentioned earlier, and my um, religious background is a little intense. I grew up fundamentalist Baptist, um, which I and a lot of other people would call a cult. Um, And then uh, on to... Uh, non-denominational evangelical, um, which the I guess the most rebellious thing about what we were doing there was that it was rock music in church. Um, <laughs> and uh, I ended up uh, doing full-time ministry in a non-denominational evangelical church, one of those post-grunge style churches um, where, you know, everybody's a hipster, everybody's wearing ripped jeans and flannels and, you know. Um, <laughs> And the music is a little too loud for everybody to be comfortable. Um, And then after some time there, uh, I went through kind of my deconstruction phase, um, rejected a lot of the Christian faith that I grew up with. Um, I think that was happening slowly over time, but it really kind of um, hit at that point. Um, And then now, uh, after doing some more exploration and studying, um, I'm kind of finding my way back to Christianity in a way, although it's more of, um, I would say I'm more of like a Jesus loyalist, quote unquote, um, with a healthy helping of Zen Buddhism. Um, my theology now lies, uh, in a lot of process, um, theology and liberation theology is, is a big, um, point of study and, and fulfillment for me now. So, um, yeah. Oh, and tonight I'm drinking, uh, Blue Point Toasted Lager, which is brewed out on Long Island, and it's pretty delicious. My name is Kelly, and I am a registered nurse at a healthcare center here in New Jersey. Um, also, just by the way, I have a Master's of Divinity from Drew University and call myself a theologian at large. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Methodist, and tonight I'm drinking Yard's Pink. Hi, I'm Anne. I am Senior Minister at First Congregational Church in Montclair, New Jersey, here just right around the corner. Um, I was raised Roman Catholic and uh, found myself, still find myself really kind of surprised to be doing what is I'm doing. I felt a call to ministry, oh, I don't know, 15 or so years ago. It took a long time for me to actually act on that. Um what I loved about my Catholic upbringing, the mystery, the, the ritual, uh, the sense of the sacred, as well as the community, are things that I carry with me, uh, even as I uh, lead a church that is mainline Protestant, United Church of Christ. Theologically speaking, I really like to resist a lot of labels. I think they're uh, too limiting, um, like language is too limiting, but um, I would say, you know, I'm... I'm, I'm I'm pretty smitten with Jesus. I think we can say that. Um, but also really understand sort of uh, God as a language, as a bigger picture, and something that we can all speak. I love, Kelly, your theologian at large, because I think really 
uh, we all look through a lens of what we think the really real is, and uh, that's God. So we're all kind of theologians at heart, but I definitely echo Nate's process um, and liberation bent. And tonight I am drinking uh, Suntory Japanese whiskey. So thank you, Nate. Oh, you're welcome. I'm Diana. I also go by D, and I work in higher education policy. And my um, trajectory with my faith um, started with Roman Catholicism as well. Uh, got through a, a few of those sacraments and uh, made it all the way to confirmation. And then I think I, that's when uh, a bit of a divergence and I um, started to question things and uh, everything that I had learned and uh, kind of, I think, a lot like you, Nate, I started to kind of, um, well, I had my little break from, from religion as well, my little hiatus sabbatical. <laughs> and then I think in that questioning, um, I actually had an interesting experience where um, in high school, um, just looking through a, peach, uh, a microscope into a Petri dish of um, looking at cell and animal, uh, uh, sorry, plant and animal cells, um, had this weird, phenomenal experience where I just was so uh, touched and enamored with like this creation. I guess the thought of like this plant cell being so beautiful and so perfect. I was like, okay, maybe this wasn't happenstance, <laughs> and maybe this wasn't, um, you know, just you know, a big bang, <laughs> or maybe if it was, it was orchestrated or with a special artistry if you will but uh it kind of started reflection and and challenging everything that i was taught and to sort of think for myself and question so that in within that questioning is how i kind of started to read for my own and learn on my own versus uh, just kind of soaking in what i was given and that's how i uh you know came to christianity in a very um you know, by choice, and which owning that choice, I think, was very powerful. Yeah. Um, but even today, I'm kind of challenging um, the status quo and everything that I'm taught. So um, within that inquiry, I would say I consider myself a progressive, a feminist, um, as much as I, you know, love God and um, and the Holy Trinity, Jesus and the Holy Ghost, and uh and still learning. Mm. <laughs> oh, and I am drinking um, a Pinot Noir tonight. So it's not brewed, but it goes well with theology. Mm, it does. <laughs> Wine is quite biblical. It is. <laughs> yeah. The first miracle. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Hi, I'm Michelle, but I go by Shelly. I play for the Metropolitan Riveters, which is a professional hockey team in the National Women's Hockey League, NWHL for short. Um, and I also teach at a charter school in Newark. Uh, I do not have a religious affiliation. Um, and tonight I am drinking River Horse uh, Summer Blonde Ale, which is brewed in New Jersey. Awesome. Right. Oh, shout out to the Riveters, because they won the freaking <laughs> Isabel Cup this year. All right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank so you. congrats. We, we all got to touch the, the, the famous <laughs> cup, the trophy, Lesa, the trophy right, cup. Right, right. That's a religious experience for some of us. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So good. All right. So, um, just, I guess to kind of kick things off, um, what was it that drew you to your uh, to your career choice? Let's start with Shelley. I grew up playing ice hockey my entire life, and um, for women, uh, you play you can play in college and. Uh, after that, it's basically playing with the national team or the Olympic team, or that's it. And so um, as I was nearing the end of my college career, the National Women's Hockey League uh, got started. So that was my senior year. It was its first year. And so I was um, so excited because that meant I had another opportunity to keep playing. And um, throughout my college career, I also found out that I enjoyed working with kids and kind of wanted to give teaching a, a shot. Um, and so... Being in New Jersey, playing with the Riveters, uh, allowed me to pursue both dreams. And so that's what I'm doing now. Awesome. Uh, so I actually started my career as a teacher, too. And I taught preschool and kindergarten. And I fell in love with working with um, little lives <laughs> and got to be a clown every day for work, which is 
pretty rad. And uh, I think that kind of led me um, to, well, I, I guess I saw um, issues that occur outside of the classroom, if you will. And I felt a little uh, frustrated in my limitations um, as an instructor within the classroom. Um, as powerful as a role it, as it was, it's kind of what started to draw me towards policy and and being able to influence change at a macro level. And how do I do that? And fast forward through many, many years, and I, I started to do graduate research and um, study inequity and in access to education. So that's where I started to become really enamored with how can I come up with a solution or a suggestion to a really serious problem mm. that mm. intersects with race, with poverty, with gender, identity, with sex, with um, just where you happen to live and where you're born into. And I'm sure working in Newark, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? And just being here in New Jersey in, in such a diverse, one of the most diverse areas in the country. Um, so now in my role, kind of working with higher education policy, kind of um, how do we give more people um, access to this mm -hmm. quote unquote public good, yeah. <laughs> which is very private, you know, it's, yeah. it, uh, you know, the cost um, to go to college and get this credentials so you can get a better job um, and have more earning power. So where I got into my role is very, windy path yeah. but um i'm here now and side note um i also was an athlete and uh i played uh, for the iwfl um for uh that's the independent women's football league and i played for the new york sharks as a, a receiver and linebacker and then uh, i also worked in ministry too and uh so it kind of have a good, well-rounded experience. <laughs> yeah, with, for with, sure. So the nerd alert and the job yeah. <laughs> experience. Definitely. That's funny. All right, Reverend Dan. Well, there are still days when I wake up and I, I can't believe I do what I do. Um, I was raised Roman Catholic, as I mentioned in my in my background, and so that, uh, to a large degree, sort of uh, cuts off a lot of careers in 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 ministry for women. Um, but as I was growing up, I really was in love with my faith. I was in love with the liturgy and the mystery and the community and the stories, and and uh, I felt very drawn as a as a young girl to. To do what was offered to me with my gender, which was to become a nun, and I imagined myself truly uh, being able to go to those places of, of sort of great human hardship and heartache and being able to bring some kind of comfort and change and all those kinds of things. Um, I had a very romanticized view, I think, of women in religious life when I was a little kid. Um, and then I um, I discovered boys, you know, around the age of 14, <laughs> and that pretty much put the kibosh on the nun dream. Um, and, and so I, I you know, I, I was always drawn, though to sort of the, the the deep human questions that are explored in faith. And so when I went to college, I majored in English and philosophy, again, sort of wanting to really get underneath the human condition uh, through literature and through deep thought. Uh, I went 16 years to Catholic school, so it was really wow. indoctrinated in there. Uh, went to, um, including college, went to a Jesuit university here in the New York area. And uh, it was there that uh, those darn Jesuits, they really taught me how to question, how to think critically, and I kind of questioned myself right out of my Catholicism, uh, much to the chagrin and shock of my family. And, and uh, But I just I, – I, I was having a hard time sort of reconciling what I had come to know of the Jesus and the Gospels with kind of how I saw faith-like being, life being lived, especially institutionally. So um, I sort of – Stepped away from the Catholic Church altogether, but I always was serving in some capacity. I worked for a variety of nonprofits with juvenile justices, with juveniles in the justice system for a while, teaching AIDS education work and a lot of things. I was always still wanting to try and serve. Um, when I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my life, I um, thought about social work. I thought about um, psychology. I was a young mom at the time, and I was at home with my kids. And when I started thinking about what I'm going to do once they're a little bit more independent, those are the two things I thought about. But it was never, ever kind of the end of the story for me. I was always thinking in terms of underneath that. And every time I peeled a layer about human need and the human condition and how we can meet it, 
I couldn't stop at either psychology or 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 social work. I I kept going deeper, and for me, that was faith. Mm. And so I felt myself shockingly drawn to seminary. Um, still expecting to sort of keep it a little bit intellectual. Uh, I thought about being a professor. That was what I initially thought I would do. I would teach theology. Um, but at some point, it kind of dropped that, you know, 15 inches from my head to my heart. And I, I knew that I was sort of drawn um, to give more than just kind of my brain to this, to give my heart to this as well. Um, so I was at Drew Theological School, and uh, I decided to go for ordination and become an ordained uh, pastor. And uh, I serve now as a senior minister in the same church I was an intern in 15, 14 years ago. So they can't get rid of me, <laughs> uh, which I'm really happy about, and I hope, hope they are too. But uh, for me, um, it was sort of that experience of of God that is constantly around us, even if we can't name it as that, that I couldn't let go of. And so that's kind of what drew me into ministry. Yeah. Amazing. Um, You know, I was a young girl, and I remember it was the 1970s, and the neighbor up the street, he got, it was winter and it was snowing, and he got a new snowmobile. And so all of the kids lined up to have a turn. And finally, I was next in line for my turn to go on the snowmobile, but he took the younger boy behind me. So I was such a good girl. I waited in line, and I knew that I would get my turn when he came back, that surely he had simply skipped over me. And if I was good and didn't complain, I would get my turn. But um, my turn was never to come. And when I said, why can't I have a ride? The, it was a noise that the man made, the neighbor man, that this was absolutely a ridiculous request. I'm not taking girls, he said. And... Um, it was sometime after that, I would say that um, when other children in the 70s, it was very popular to say, what do, to a boy, are you going to become president? And when I would say, well, I'd like to be the first woman president, that I would get that same response, that same, <laughs> are you kidding me? The ridiculousness of what you are saying, if not outright laughter. And so it was sometime as I got older, I said lawyer, and I got the same response. Um, I didn't say anything for a long time after that. Um, and at some point, I must have said nurse, and that was acceptable. And so I did become a nurse. No one recognized me walking across town to go to church. How many times I'd read my Bible, that I was memorizing Bible verses and studying the different um, translations and comparing them in my room by myself when I was, but what, 13? And um, I honored my sense of call in my 40s when I went back to seminary mm. to truly do the study that I was called to do. Mm. Um, and now that is part of my ministry moving forward. Wow. That's about, I, and it's, it's interesting. So um, I was talking to um, Vicki, one of our um, brew theologians here in Jersey, and we, we were chatting, kind of rehashing what was going on last night in the, in the conversations. And she was like, there was this one woman, I can't remember her name. Um, she had this story about a snowmobile. <laughs> Oh. And I would like the, as soon as you mentioned snowmobile, I'm like, perfect. I don't have to like try to bring up the story. <laughs> I literally was like grabbing my chest and my hair as you're telling the story. I so the reason actually I ended up getting into football was I was five years old, and in my township that shall remain nameless in the state of New Jersey. <laughs> this protection program. <laughs> um, my mom took me to uh, peewee football tryouts and I told my mom I want to play and like an amazing mom that supports her daughter in whatever, all her endeavors um, took me and then the coach said, sorry, but girls can't play. And it was something so powerful about that statement that was in, I internalized and my five-year-old little self, soul, brain, heart is like, can't. (laughs) And and maybe that's where like my oppositional disorder, like was born. (laughs) And it's like, what do you mean? I can't. I, and, and I think that's where that, 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 rage and that you know but belief in myself and in my ability and in and believing i mean and it takes i think a lot of courage to be 
you know, um, wait in line. And, and you even gave the benefit of doubt to this neighbor, right? <laughs> <laughs> this buffoon was, was like, you wanted to believe the best in people. And at, at such a young age, us women, we, we learn that, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, the, the world or some call the patriarchy works against us. And we always have to work a little harder and put a little effort and navigate things a little differently than people do, mm-hmm. you know, than a man does. Sorry. And then take it a, a notch above that, you know, the transgender community or, mm-hmm. you know, when you're queer and, and you have a, or you're a woman of color, like that intersection yeah. adds that, extra layer of strife yeah. that mm-hmm. just makes it a little bit tougher. Yeah. And uh, so I, I know I said this earlier, but Nate, I'm really happy to be here and, yeah. and just having this platform to talk about, uh, you know, woman's experience. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that you brought up intersectionality. Um, and I think that's such a crucial aspect to this conversation. Um, Cause you know, I, I've been so fascinated by, um, and this kind of leads into a whole other conversation that we could end up here for like six hours. I don't want to do that. Um, but Shelly, you have a, you had a teammate last year, um, who's transgender and the, the first, the very first, um, out transgender, yep. um, athlete, right? Yep. Absolutely. What was, what was that like? <laughs> yeah. Um, his name is Harrison Brown. Uh, he came out as openly transgender either this i think the season before he was a riveter so Mm -hmm. with the buffalo buttes um and i can't i mean as far as i can see and tell like our league um was very like welcomed in open arms and um he he's just a a teammate um there was nothing i mean i I know that it, it creates questions in terms of like um I guess like so when you start taking testosterone when mm-hmm. not taking testosterone and all yeah. those questions and those are beyond my sort of yeah. but um, I while not on any sort of hormone mm-hmm. um, if you want to identify as whatever you want to identify as mm-hmm. um, that then you um, allow like then you play in our yeah. league as long as you're, there's no I guess yeah. in hormone but uh, um, he, just the normal I don't know he's cool he's great yeah. like he just uh, <laughs> yeah. but he's he's um, retired now yeah. and has started to uh, transition I guess physically okay. so now it will not be playing but um, is hoping to somehow stay involved in league and uh, yeah. um, just he teach people and help spread the word about yeah. like. Just all that he uh, has gone through and, yeah. and help others. And he's such an inspiration. Um, I don't want to do like too many plugs on, on here, but um, anyone who's listening, who's uh, kind of dealing with uh, the frustration of being transgender in, in a very isolating kind of environment, um, Harrison Brown's YouTube channel. Mm, yeah. um, <laughs> I like I've, I've watched his channel and have been moved to tears. He's vulnerable. He shares so much. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah Shelly's teammate. He's very he, like he does motivational speaking. Like, he's mm-hmm. very much like of helping one people who who have not come in contact with transgender people and just teaching mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, really just informing people, mm-hmm. but also people who are struggling with their identity and and feeling alone. Uh, he wants to make sure that they they don't feel alone. They know that other people are going through similar experiences, and so he's very um, like, anyone who who I'm, I'm speaking for him, but yeah. um, <laughs> he, he like. Reached, he's happy to talk and help. Yeah. And, uh. Well, I think that's a really important point to, to think about for any group that's trying to break through, mm-hmm. that's trying to claim uh, what is theirs, you know, in the culture, what should be theirs in the culture, to have those folks who are willing to be mentors, willing to share their stories, share their pains. And I think each of us as women around this circle, uh, we've all had those role models who have helped us imagine what's possible. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that was, you know, uh, Kelly, listening to your story about you know, being the good girl that stands in line, I mean, that's also mm-hmm. my story as well. And certainly um, in the tradition where I was raised, that's what made sort of a girl or a woman acceptable, mm-hmm. was that you were patient and accommodating and you waited your turn and you stood in line. And I remember when I, when I uh, dared to say that I wanted to become a pastor, um, people who... You know, loved me and knew me the best were the ones that were most scandalized by this. You know, that wasn't what what nice quiet girls did. You know, nice quiet girls were were nuns or they were caregivers or maybe if they were really bold, they were theologians. But they kept it sort of out of that public sphere, 
right? And so um, it was seeing the um, few women who I knew and saw that were actually living out that sense of call with such integrity and such courage that I thought, you know, I can do this. It's not going to look like the male pastors in my life. It's not going to look like my uncle who's a Catholic priest, but it's going to look like my authentic call. And if it hadn't been for those folks who are willing to kind of be out there and do this, you know, on the cutting edge of women transgressing, and I use that word very intentionally, into territory that they've been told was not okay for them, I don't think I could have done it. So, you know, hats off to your teammate. That's a really brave and wonderful yeah. thing that he's doing. Yeah. He's pretty incredible. I kind of wanted to to go into some specifics and talk about some ways that discrimination has manifested in your particular um, environment and uh, or your workplace or industry. How do you combat these actions or circumstances? Um, and how do you engage with or educate men who want to help combat gender discrimination, mm-hmm. or even men who don't give one one or two shits about it (laughs) and i also want to add women too okay yeah yeah, sometimes women are perpetuators internally internalized misogyny is real yeah it's real right yeah yeah um yeah free for all let's just let's just converse about it yeah (laughs) i don't know maybe i'm the most obvious one i don't know (laughs) we all turned and looked at you it's like yeah okay so it was literally baked into the doctrine so let's just (laughs) let's just put that out there um, but you know, so often, you know, now, now I, I am no longer Catholic, right? Mm. Although it's still in there yeah. and in all good ways. So I just want to, you know, clear that up. Um, but I do often from the odd, you know, evangelical or fundamentalist or conservative Christian, I will sort of get the, you know, sort of who do you think you are? How do you think you can do this? Um, and usually they quote, mm-hmm. you know, Paul's letter to, to Timothy or the Ephesians and, you know, and some of those, those quotes. And, you know, sometimes I just sort of take a deep breath and I am like, how deep do you want to go in this? <laughs> because it's so, um, it's so formative in the Western Christian religion that it's patriarchal. Yeah. God is male. Therefore, and, and all of Jesus' apostles were male. So not only do I not have the legitimacy to be a pastor as a woman, um, you know, I really, I really shouldn't even be, be talking or teaching about this, you know, at all. It's kind of, it's kind of baked in. But I think what's really important, and if they, if they're willing to give me the time, uh, I will talk to them about how I understand the scriptures and how really in progressive Christianity in general, we understand the scriptures and, and, you know, that as, as, as humanity's quest for God. So it's a human collection of stories and letters and witnesses to that ancient community's experience of God. Mm-hmm. They're sacred for us because they continue to give us meaning and, and, and reflect our questions, but they're rooted and limited by the human communities that wrote them. Mm. So language is metaphorical. Language is limited. And when you are only trapped by uh, the imagination of the era, mm-hmm. you know, 1,200 years ago or so, uh, or 2,000 to, to 1,200 BCE, excuse me, um, you know, you're kind of stuck in a first century worldview. So I ask them, you know, do you really see that we should be living as first century, uh, you know, Palestinians. Is that really how you see the worldview? And generally, no. You know, even as even as white straight men, no. You know, it's not. You know, our lives are all limited by that. So I think, as thinking theologians, we need to understand that the words of Scripture have to live, and that means that they have to reflect a growing understanding of God, a growing understanding of the human condition, and that means a growing understanding of who women are and what our relationship is is with men. So there's a whole lot of theology you can go into yeah. about whether those letters of Paul are, are authentic, whether they're reflecting sort of an increasing uh, capitulation to the Roman Empire and the patriarchy of the empire, you know, but sometimes it's just exhausting to have to be justifying that kind of thing. Usually my sense of call or even my title is diminished and made diminutive um, by people who, who I run into. I'm often mistaken for I must be some kind of nun or I must at, at the very most be, they love to say that I must be the Christian ed director because that's what women do, right? Mm. So, so it's really interesting when I, when I do have an encounter with someone and I am senior minister and I am on their level in terms of um, my authority within my community. Um, but it is, it's, it's an exhausting experience. 
And I think one of the things as 21st century people we don't understand is that the ancient tradition of, of writing in the name of a teacher was very, very common. It didn't mean you were the teacher, but you were one of the teacher's disciples. And so, and, and I think the other thing that we don't realize is that, you know, these, these letters that Paul wrote were always very specific. There was a problem in the church in Ephesus. There was a problem in, in the church in Galatia, right? And Paul was writing to a specific specific problem within a context but we sort of universalize it mm-hmm. and we say well this is how we're supposed to be for all time and it, it, it that would be plagiarism but that, <laughs> he did not footnote you know he did not he did not get credit but i think one of the things that we do which which has been part of the challenge is that we look at ancient texts and therefore sort of the origins of of ancient doctrine through 21st century Mm -hmm. eyes and we don't realize the difference and we don't recognize you know in in my denomination united church of christ major plug for them um (laughs) our 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 slogan is really god is still speaking Mm. and what we mean by that is that beyond the scriptures beyond the doctrines god is revealing herself through Mm. you know through poetry through scientific discovery through breakthroughs in understanding about our humanity Mm. that is sacred stuff and we can't shut the book and say that you know where the scriptures ended is where we have to end um frankly that's heretical Mm. heresy means a partial truth that's a partial truth Mm -hmm. right so it's heretical to think that that god stopped you Mm. know at what humans could understand two thousand years ago three thousand years ago so but you know i have to tell you very few folks i encounter that challenge my legitimacy really want a lesson mm, yeah. <laughs> in, in, in that in scriptural sort of you know um yeah so it's 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 challenging <laughs> yeah but you know it's it's i know all of you can relate sure. it's exhausting to justify our existence in the professions where we are it really is but i also know it's the kind of work we have to do it's small steps built on each other in solidarity with each, with each other that's ever going to make a change you know last night at the pub you said something that just resonated with my soul was you said I'm just tired I'm tired and I and you said it within a context that was like wow I'm this is what social justice fatigue feels like (laughs) yeah maybe more tired this year than than years past (laughs) well you know yeah right we're completely justified (laughs) for our exhaustion yeah it's like we're we're fighting this narrative since and you've heard from kelly and our stories that we've been in this fight for a while and it's just never ending and it's we're still Nate, do you want to go over the pay inequity? Yeah, because I, ju- I, I was just about <laughs> yeah. to say, um, buckle so your seatbelts because yeah. it's going to get a little worse. Yeah. Um, so, Shelly, you, you shared a story last night um, about, now I know you're not, uh, you weren't involved directly um, with what took place, but the just kind of by way of introduction, uh, 2017, the U.S. women's hockey team uh, got the governing body, USA Hockey, to agree to similar arrangements for women that uh, the same, uh, well, similar arrangements that the men had as far as like insurance and travel and so so on. Um, like like I mentioned, you weren't directly involved in all of that, but you were on the national team in 2014, so you're kind of connected to to that story. Do you mind sharing a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was still so this was talks about this and the older players on our team like huge shout out to them um sort of monique lamru jocelyn lamru megan duggan hillary knight like the, the people who had been in the program uh for a while really spearheaded this and uh in i believe it was 2016 which was sort of my last year really fully with the national team um there had been these talks about what was going to go on and trying to get uh, equity between the men's U.S. national team and, and women's na- uh, U.S. national team um, because there's just huge discrepancies between um, stipends for how much how much you're getting uh, paid and um, hotel accommodations and appearances and number of games and um, and there were ju- junior boys who are 18, 19, 20, 20, 20 years old getting paid more, getting better accommodations and more games than the top women in in the country who are playing um, and so just just absurd really um and so there was this sort of movement that that started and all culminated with a boycott of the of the world or almost boycott of the world championships in in 2017 yeah Yeah. because uh 
after about a year of just trying to negotiate behind the scenes and keep it quiet and, and keep this united front, um, and things weren't happening. And so they led to a boycott and uh, they, the U.S. national team players uh, weren't going to play in the world championships. Um, and so the US, USA hockey didn't have a team. And it's the, the world champions were going to be on U.S. soil. And so this mm-hmm. was a huge deal. And at first, the U.S., the kind of governing body, uh, tried to replace these players with sort of the se- second rate and then third rate <laughs> and then fourth rate. But uh, women stood together and, and they did, wouldn't have been able to field a team. And eventually... Um, the, the voices were heard and an agreement was made and the women ended up playing in those world championships winning and then now won the gold medal at the 2018 Olympics. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> just a huge win all around for <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Quick interjection. I was screaming. I was, the, the worst part about the Olympics hockey was like... Nerd. Yeah, I'm a hockey nerd. Yeah, yeah and, and Ryan brings that up whenever he introduces me on the podcast. Hey, this is Nate, the hockey nerd. Um, but like I was oh, late at night. Yep. You know, the, the next day at work was brutal, but oh my god, <laughs> worth I, it, right? Yeah, oh, so absolutely worth it. worth it. Crying, like watching everybody go nuts. Oh, it was it was beautiful, uh, and what a great end to that story. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, um, that that was a landmark decision for USA Hockey to even uh, consider. Which it's ridiculous that we have to say landmark decision because mm-hmm. uh, it really should just be common sense, right? I mean, I know I'm I'm kind of speaking from from an observational standpoint, but. Um, it certainly was a landmark decision. Do you see um, any areas for improvement at all, though? Because I feel like there really there should be um, even further steps that, that can be taken, right? Yeah, I mean, um, I will see. Hopefully, that things fall through now that the Olympics are over, and, and there's now, unfortunately, after the Olympics, there's sort of a like a, a, a lag or a letdown in sort yeah. of the the hype and everything. And so, hopefully, there's a follow through from USA Hockey, um, and that's yet to be seen. So, yeah. fingers crossed that, that, that yeah. things stay stay on the right track. Um, but in my opinion, um, I think more needs to be done keeping girls uh, in the game. And I mean, athletics in general, but mm-hmm. especially more male sports like ice hockey yeah. or football, yeah. um, uh, keeping them in the game as they get older yeah. just because we lose so many. And so I, I don't know what that could look like, yeah. but at least putting some resources and some time and thought and like, how do we keep girls uh, playing the game? Mm-hmm. Because um, it's fantastic and it opens many yeah. doors and it's just amazing and, and, and a great sport. And Here so... Uh, what can we do when when um, sort of the world is sort of saying like you're not meant to be playing ice yeah. hockey but there's got to be a way that we can we can kind of create a different story yeah. different narrative Shelly you talked a little bit last night about uh, why girls don't play <laughs> yeah <laughs> and why persistence in sports kind of drops at a certain rate you shared last night a little bit about that yeah I mean um, especially when you're I guess I talked last night about um, being my experience of being in high school and um, when I started having these, you know, when I wanted to play college hockey, that means you have to be in the weight room and you have to be training. And so um, I'd be in the weight room doing my thing and, and amongst uh, with the weights was just all boys. And I'd see uh, the girls were at the treadmill. And as I said, nothing wrong with that. But it's yeah. just that there was no one other girl with me. Um, and so I, I luckily... I don't know why or whatever. I was just in my own little bubble. Like, yeah, I'm just lifting weights. I don't care. Like, I, I just, I didn't really notice. But I can see now how that could be really um, disheartening for girls. And um, maybe uh, there's something wrong with me or I'm weird or I don't. Mm-hmm. There's also a body image thing where you see all these images of really slender, like, toned women, I think is, like, the, the word that they like to use rather than necessarily strong. But, um, and so there's just not wanting to look like that. And so, therefore, you can't become this more elite athlete. But there's also... There's uh, so complicated in terms of, but there's also athletes who don't look that way but are incredibly strong, and so it's like, and then there's the question of how legit are they if they don't look this way, and so it's like it's like it's a lose in some ways lose lose because if you're too strong, then you're not feminine enough, but if you look too feminine, then you must not be a legitimate athlete, and so it's just like uh, I'm just not going to play because then I don't have to deal with all this (laughs) exhaustion, right? Just exhaustion. Yeah, Um, tired. Just plain tired. So yeah. um, but I don't know, maybe just be the, the circle I was in, I just kind of had this own little bubble yeah. and, and stuck with it. But yeah. I can definitely see how that can prevent girls from playing. Yeah. yeah. And, and like, so you and I coached together and, and something you mentioned last night that I was thinking about and really it was, it was sitting in my mind for almost the entire night. Um, at the U8 level, we've got tons of girls mm-hmm. playing. And U12, a f- you know, significantly 
smaller mm-hmm. number, and then U14s even less, and U18s forget it, mm-hmm. just a handful right. left. Right. So. Yeah, I think that goes into what we were just talking about. And I, someone, and I'm grateful that you sort of brought it up. Was like, well, could that just be interest? Like, mm. maybe they have different interests in other sports and other and all that, which yes, can play a part of that. Mm-hmm. But um, there's then there's got to be a way of keeping girls playing yeah. ice hockey and um and part of it is like i hear girls like at a, they're 12 I'm like oh my hair is gonna be all messy afterwards <laughs> like you'll fix it later it's fine or like i'm afraid to fall or i'm afraid to get hurt and it's and so there's a price that they would have to pay yeah. to continue forward mm. i think we talked about that yeah. Social well price. Yeah. yeah so like what's what's the gain for a girl to continue playing yeah. at a young age right like if you're a male jock in high school, mm-hmm. y- y- you oh. said you said it last night, Shelly. Like you're Mister Popular. <laughs> That's right. You get the girls. <laughs> you so w- what does the girl get as the female athlete? Right. Right. You know, as the cheerleader. You know, you're you're pretty. You're cute. You're spunky. Yeah. You're attractive. You know, there's so and that I think boils down to my main point last night. It's like, sort of what is woman's value mm. in society what is she most valued for is it her um you know getting married what what are when we praise women and their successes what are we praising what are you know what do you get points for <laughs> you know <laughs> and right. do you get points for you know being strong mm-hmm. for being smart the smart aleck in your class mm-hmm. for being a scientist for you know so i think at the end of the day when we're kind of breaking forget you know breaking barriers and breaking shattering ceilings you know we have to navigate this labyrinth um that's a little bit harder into leadership or into uh spaces that are predominantly you know male dominated and it's harder to thrive there because you just there's so few like you mm, right and and it's not praised in the same way that it is for a man to be a leader for a man to be strong for mm-hmm. a man to be um you know athletic as mm-hmm. as as it is for a woman d you had mentioned um the value of women let's go even deeper into that because <laughs> here we go um shelly you know you had just shared about um about usa hockey which you're not involved with currently now playing professionally um so shifting over to professional sports um now before we go to professional sports let's just talk overall wage gap um in general according to the census bureau and labor department data um we're seeing a gender pay difference um among white between white women and white men um, of roughly 79 cents every dollar. If we factor in minorities, we're looking at around 60. Um, I did the math between last night and tonight. <laughs> so proud of you, Nate. Thanks. <laughs> um, we're looking a, a, a wage gap of around 55 to 60 cents to every dollar. However, the highest NWHL salary um, was $7,000 last season. Um, compared to the highest NHL salary of $13.8 million last season, which is absolutely absurd. Um, Now, if we break that down per game, uh, we're looking at around $168,293 per regular season game in the NHL versus $437.50 per regular season game in the NWHL. Um, Now, you know, because the women do play fewer games than men, so of course we got to do that with the math. Um... There are certainly myriad contributing factors here, both related and unrelated to gender bias. Um, But the difference, which is three-tenths of a penny to every dollar, is absolutely staggering. Do you you have any thoughts as far as reasons for this? And uh, while while the challenge does seem insurmountable, I feel like there has to be some solutions, (laughs) right? Um, What what are some things that we as fans, um, athletes, other participants in sports, um, what, what are some things that we could do to to help kind of overcome this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I started off by saying last night too that I think what men get paid to play professional sports, regardless of sport, is pretty yes. pretty ridiculous yes. um, on the on the other end. And so, um, and a lot of that is uh, is marketing and the yeah. amount that they can make because of all these different you know TVs and ads and, mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And so. Um, 
and we're not there as a right. as a women's professional league. Um, we don't have our games aren't televised. Um, this year we had an amazing deal with Twitter that they that they live streamed uh, a game a weekend, um, and, and things are growing. But pe- most people just don't know about our league. Whenever I talk about it, they're like, "Oh, I had no idea that there was a women's professional league," and, and they're super excited about it. Um, but again, it's just it's just not out there, um, and I think. So I, I talked a little bit about, you know, that's on our end as, as players, just talking more about it and getting ourselves out there and, and doing a lot of the legwork because no one's going to do it for us, mm-hmm. um, as we've all talked about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but also going with that is, so there's the model with the uh, NBA and WNBA. The NBA, like, fully supports WNBA and sort of has made it, um, as far as I know, maybe I'm misspeaking, but uh, has made it... <laughs> um, Kind of a partner league, yes, right? somewhat of a partnership, and, and just more sustainable. Sustainable yeah. is the word I'm looking for. Um, and right now, we don't have that sort of uh, official relationship right. with NHL. Right. Um, each individual teams have different partnerships. Mm-hmm. Like, so we're with the Devils, and they help us out, and I'm so grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Buffalo Sabers um, and our Buffalo Buttes team uh, work together. And there's an incredible partnership there. Um, but, but outside of that, due to the fact that, and it's just some like women's hockey history yeah. uh, for those who are interested, um, <laughs> there there are two competing right. women's hockey leagues. Um, there's one in Canada, primarily in Can- based in Canada, and then one in America. So um, the the NHL at large is kind of reluctant right. to uh, to partner up with either one. They kind of want to see it all play out mm. first, right? Which which absolutely makes sense. And, and the Canadian Women's Hockey League is amazing, and uh, those teams are incredible we'd love to play against them in in any capacity whether that means just for the playoffs or we understand that travel and thing like there are big hurdles with that um we hope soon that um our two sort of um commissioners can come to some sort of agreement and because i think that's where we can have a more sustainable Mm -hmm. league and 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 real really work together to to minimize that huge that gap that you're talking about Yeah. yeah and i think just as a fan um something that i I love, and I know like you have that sort of sheepish grin when I, when I bring it up, but like, um, getting involved in the games, showing up and buying the players jerseys. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, you get something from Jersey sales, even like if it's a, (laughs) yeah, we get a percentage of whenever you buy a shirt or a jersey that has our name on Mm -hmm. it. Um, All right, so I won't, I won't give my, <laughs> I won't give my la- any riveter, any yeah. any butte, any pride yeah. player. Pick your, if you have a favorite player and you are able to um, buy a jersey, then uh, please do. And if you've got daughters, please bring them, or even son. Like I think it's really important too for mm-hmm. sons to yeah. oh, totally. to see yep. women playing yep. sport or see women in any sort. Like uh, just go to professional sports, soccer, basketball. Yeah. Um, or all and or even if you're just even if you're a hockey nerd and but you've only seen the NHL like go to a go to a WNB uh, WNBA <laughs> <laughs> you can go to a WNBA you know, props yeah. too yeah. they need pride to yeah. defeat the purpose right. there's, pay in, yeah. there's pay inequity there too right. <laughs> just, um, even if you've never gone to a women's uh, sporting event try it out yes. and you'll be you'll be surprised you'll at first be yeah. surprised and then as I was talking about. I hope you get to this. You expect the same type of competitive mm-hmm. play that mm-hmm. that you see on the men's side, and um, and and hopefully you'll you'll keep coming back. Yeah. And the tickets are cheaper. Yeah. So. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I gotta say um, that the game winning goal <laughs> that Alexa Grushow scored in your championship game. My roommate, um, by the way. Oh, that was your roommate. <laughs> oh, that's anyway, awesome. Sorry. So yeah, absolute shout out to her. That. Uh, hands down the best game winning goal I've seen in any kind of playoff or mm. tournament. It was look it up on YouTube. It's, <laughs> it, like you it, and you don't even know, like I was watching it. I'm like, is that even physically possible? I can't, I, the only thing that comes close was Bobby Orr's little mm-hmm. post, um, post goal flying moment but that was yeah. after he scored right. the goal yeah she did that caught the I'm gonna, dis- I'm gonna describe it right now she um <laughs> yeah i am totally <laughs> nerding out right now <laughs> ryan is gonna yeah. be rolling his oh, eyes he when he hears this <laughs> yeah she um in midair after like after getting her legs swept out from under her she's in midair somehow has the wherewithal to capture the puck while she's flying and go top shelf with that thing mm-hmm. just 
mind blowing. <laughs> it was the only goal scored in that game, and it was still the most exciting game I've seen in winter. It was just have unreal. to send this to this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look it up on YouTube. Um, Metropolitan Riveters 2018 Isabel Cup. You could use those search terms. It mm-hmm. it's just wild. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, and one final geek out moment. You you were the last person to touch the puck in, in that game. <laughs> it's like, a, a, but a testament to the type of game that that Shelly played. So Shelly's not like the stats girl. Um, no, no, no. But her presence is constantly felt. Nobody gets past that blue line. Like mm. she she owns that space and every like i listen to other women's hockey podcasts i'm such a nerd um really yeah and uh, they talk about you um in those terms because it's like your your contribution to your team is um it's sort of the intangibles um and it like it's such a testament to the type of game that you play that all the way even up to the final horn you are still after that puck and you were like nope nobody's touching this thing i'm not letting buffalo anywhere near it until i know this game is done <laughs> so well thank you yeah, absolutely. <laughs> can you just ask your question again um because you said something and i was like you asked oh, what yeah. can we do yeah what they, so like um what are some ways that we as, as sports fans athletes other participants um what are some ways that we can work to overcome uh, to overcome this um, I just wanted to bring attention to the wage gap and issues uh, with equal pay for equal work that happens across every sector, oh, like yeah. not just sports. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, and in sports, it's like yeah. especially yeah. egregious yeah. just because yeah. they're getting millions and millions and millions of dollars to, you know, in a fraction for mm-hmm. women. Um, and uh, but as far as like offering solutions and and hope – um, the state of New Jersey um, recently, um, a c- few months ago, passed um, signed into law the Diane B. Allen Equal Pay Act, uh, which amends the New Jersey law against uh, discrimination to provide enhanced equal pay protections for New Jersey employees. This was just signed by our new governor, Governor wow. Phil Murphy, and it goes it's effective July 1st um, so okay. just this month and it prohibits uh, pay disparities based upon characteristics uh, so protected classes mm-hmm. like uh, race, creed, color, national origin, nationality, ancestry, age and sex. Mm. Um, so it's basically making practices um, you know unlawful um, that that would create pay disparities. So for example, just to give you an example, if you're going to apply for a job and you start to the, you, have you ever been asked that question? Um, what were you earning at your previous job or um, and you have to put, OK, well, I was earning thirty five thousand dollars, but this employer has like fifty five thousand dollars to pay you. It's like mm, instead of paying you fifty five, I can pay you, you know, thirty six mm. <laughs> or forty and I'm going to save money. And that's kind of those practices is what perpetuates right. cycles right. of, of yeah. pay inequity. So mm-hmm. women, you know, with um, a master's degree um, or even a, a terminal degree will still earn less um, than their male counterparts um, with the same credential. Um, so, yeah. you know, laws like this and when, um, you know, men in power use their uh, privilege um, to sort of, say hey this is not okay and i don't know who at the the u.s you know hockey association or uh, you know in these top levels were saying okay what was the breaking moment but when people in power um Mm -hmm. start to care um about those that lack power um that's how you use privilege to sort of help people um Mm. that lack um and to bring them up and to establish equality so And that's perfect. Um, so one of our brew theologians, uh, Giovanni, um, his question, which I think you just answered, um, is what would you say to your male counterparts mm. um, in your respective field regarding the wage gap? Mm. Um, and that that answers the question right mm-hmm. there. You can always yeah. make a difference. Oh, absolutely. And whether you're in, you know, HR hiring practices um, or you're in certain committees, when you're at a decision-making table or even a, I don't care if it's a Bible study, church group, um, athletic group, your even your, your, your pickup football league, like 
who's not at the table? Right. Mm. Who's not at your, your, who's not on your team? Like I've played intramural sports, like post my time in, 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 in the IWFL and, you know, leagues that have rules that have a, a quota that you have to have like X amount of women, um, on your, your team. I think, you know, out of seven players, you have to have at least, I don't know, three, you know, or like, Kelly's like one, at least one <laughs> yeah. or two, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, three is pretty high, especially when you're, you know, you struggle with, um, sort of persistence and women in sports mm-hmm. and, um, three is high. And then every, um, um, every four downs, uh, or I'm sorry, or every three or something, a woman has to QB like that's those kinds of rules mm-hmm. really address putting women, yeah. women at the plate or yeah. women giving women, you know, the opportunity to really show up. Yeah. And actually making it mandatory for guys to say, okay, I'm going to go through my phone book and get women yeah. to play. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, and I think that's what's, you know, we ask about what, what can be done. And, and the reality, and we've talked a lot about exhaustion here, right? We've talked about how hard it can be to constantly be fighting this fight yeah. alone or just with the rest of us who are also exhausted. I think for those um, male allies out there who see this as a problem, who see wage inequity as a problem, who see discrimination in in various fields as a problem, um, there is something they can do because that position of privilege uh, is so powerful to be able to, you know, from your place where it's really no skin off your nose right what's happening with the women but for you to to demonstrate that that this matters to you as a human being mm-hmm. right as someone with a conscious as someone someone with a sense of justice um that's a very powerful thing and i think in some ways it is going to take male allies to disrupt the system mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. N- you know, not that we don't have the skill, the stamina, the depth, the intellect, all of those things to do it, but all of that doesn't mean we can be heard. Right. If the if the patriarchy doesn't want to hear it, and so that's what makes patriarchy patriarchy. Um, so for that to be disrupted, we do need male allies. Yeah. You know, and I think so. When when men are able to step into those spaces and say, "Look, there's a lot of people not at this table, and we need to make an effort to get them there." Yeah. It's a powerful thing. Oh, it is. It is. And then again, um, tapping into that sense of intersectionality, mm-hmm. any um, voice that isn't heard, Absolutely. the people who are heard need to step right. up. That's it. That's what allyship is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's so powerful. So, D, um, for you, this was a question we didn't get to last night, but I wanted to kind of um, direct this one at you. Know, I, thought, I think it's incredibly relevant now. Um, so in the months leading up to this midterm election, um, and if you're listening to this really late, 2018 is the year we're talking about this. Um, <laughs> um, so in the months leading up to this midterm election in 2018, uh, the number of women running for elected office has skyrocketed. However, the fact remains that despite the nation being comprised of over 51% women, female representation in Congress remains less than 20%. In 2012, the U.S. ranked 78th worldwide in female representation in politics. Uh, Nordic regions, um, so the countries like Denmark, Sweden, Iceland, Finland, etc., um, they led the world with around 45% um, representation. Um, how do you think gender stereotypes have contributed to these abysmal numbers in this country? Ooh, I got the easy <laughs> question tonight. Yeah, you did. <laughs> um, so I want to start with uh, two things. One, um, the lack of representation of women is universal in leadership from corporate boards, nonprofit boards, college presidency, um, CEOs of, you know, fortune five hundreds, one hundreds, whatever it is, severely underrepresented, um, in STEM fields. That's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. It's, it's, uh, and athletics, as we've learned tonight, um, it's everywhere, and especially in politics. Um, New Jersey's um, of New Jersey's twelve uh, congress uh, members in the congressional delegation, one is a woman at this moment, Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman, and uh, and she's a woman of color, which is incredibly yeah. exciting. Um, but for a state that has you know, more than 50, 51% uh, women, uh, you don't have women speaking 
um, at the, the in in Washington D.C. Uh, for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then this number two, I just wanted to do a quick shout out uh, to my home girl um, Ashley Bennett, um, who is a freeholder in Atlantic County. Um, I actually helped run her campaign, and she. Uh, she is a Democrat um, in the freeholder seat that was challenged. Uh, she was the challenger to a Republican incumbent um, who at and shameless plug. Uh, he he commented on the Women's March in D.C. with a Facebook meme um, that said, uh, will the Women's March be over already for them to cook dinner? Um, that was that guy. I saw that. Yep. <laughs> Oh, yeah. every like, yeah. oh, every cell in my body was like, I, really? oh yeah, really, yeah. What oh, year were Ashley you was in? on uh, <laughs> national television, <laughs> so she's my homegirl from college, and um, I helped run her campaign when nobody thought she would win in a predominantly uh, Republican um, district yeah. um, that supported uh, Donald Trump for the presidency at the time, and. Um, it, it was it, and as a woman of color, one, a woman two a woman of color, um, uh, an African-American woman. She was challenging, you know, this misogynistic narrative yeah. <laughs> and it's like she had no chance of women winning. And she did because she showed up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She ran. Yeah. She went in. So um, to answer your question, it's. It's scary. Mm-hmm. It's really scary when you are often the only woman Mm. in in those spaces again just like many other spaces right um but especially in politics when it's very uh transactional and Mm. very male dominated and it's a boys club and it's like Mm -hmm. um you know i don't want to get all jersey but it's like hey Vinny, you know (laughs) and and Vinny talking to johnny and and (laughs) here comes ashley you know it's like all right let's talk justice you know do you think too it's also the structures that are in place. It is a hierarchy. And you're asking women yep. to perform yes. in a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. We're yeah. Listen to the way we're talking now. We're all gaining knowledge one from each other and a sharing. No one has to be the boss in charge of the knowledge today. Right. We're better off to share it. Um, much how women work and lead families. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more of a sharing and a cooperative. And that's not the leadership. Our structures do not allow for that kind of leadership. As a nurse... I have to be the supervisor. I have to be in charge. I rule over. And I, that's the structure I have to try and work in. I often call myself as a nursing supervisor. They call me the soup. And I would say that 90% of my work, I'm the soup. I'm the supporter. Mm. A good 5%, mm. I'm the soup. I should be warm and comforting to support my staff mm. and be there for you. And don't make me be the supervisor because yeah. I don't like it. I don't like that role. I have perfectly competent nurses. And now that there's more male nurses coming up, mm. they are getting the leadership roles because mm. they're comfortable in the hierarchy. Yeah. Whereas my women who are better nurses than I will not take those roles. Mm. So research shows that actually women are m- much more collaborative That's in their it. approach. Mm-hmm. And, and relational. Ex- mm-hmm. Precisely. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a system, just like you said, that functions in a certain hierarchy or leadership there's this ladder right and there's rungs and the only way is if you're perceived in a certain way which is being strong as opposed to this dance is circular which is you know and 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 i i I think though that the hope is that um again those those first women who dare to transgress into those male spaces Mm -hmm. and are confronted with you know the very vertical hierarchy but as they start to uh, collaborate with each other, they can start to break apart that as business as usual, mm, right? Mm. That the hierarchy is the only way that power can be uh, can be affected. I mean, power can be shared right. every bit as much as it can be wielded yeah. over. And I think that's a really important thing that women can bring to all mm. of these conversations. Yeah. Um, and certainly, you know, in my in my background, um, you know, as a little Catholic girl, that the the priest had a very authoritative, above it all, mm-hmm. you know, persona. Yeah. Um, it was God. You know, it was, you know, Father Brady, and and then it was the rest of us. And uh, Father Brady is a made-up name. Um, I'm not, not impugning oh. anyone in particular. Father Brady um, sounds a bit Irish. Yeah, well, 
Where does he live? There you go. There you go. But but I think that as women break into these different fields, that's where we can start to change that dynamic. And it is small mm. steps. Yeah. And I think that you know, we've joked a lot about the exhaustion, right, right. that comes from always being the one that's, that's breaking into the new space or, or, or butting our heads up against a wall. But I also do think we can, if we look at the that moral arc of the universe, right, mm. that's long but bends towards justice, I think we can see that things are changing. Structures mm-hmm. are changing. Understanding what power effectively wielded is, is changing. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something to be hopeful for. Yeah. It's not happening fast enough. It's not happening broad enough. But it is happening. Mm-hmm. And I think there can be... There can be those, you know, small bricks, small bricks, small bricks, and all of a sudden you've got this really powerful thing. And I think that's, you know, something that we do need to celebrate together as women, because otherwise we really do get kind of exhausted and demoralized. But I think we have to celebrate the victories where where we do see them, because they're real.